Thank you for joining us this morning. This is Max Morris, and you are listening to this intuitive public radio curated and coordinated by survivors of human trafficking and survivors of the many forms of invisible violence incentivized by human trafficking networks, the ramifications of which we are all experiencing across widely diverse communities and widely diverse life experiences all over the world. I'm speaking today with Helena Krizek, who since 2021 has been visiting with us and sharing her experiences over the course of three previous broadcasts, telling the story of her daughter, Bianca Krizek, whose death was the result of medical malpractice we find to be increasingly connected to unaddressed healthcare intersections of human organ trafficking. Because Helena brings Bianca's story to this platform, we all have new opportunities to listen, to learn, to safeguard ourselves, our families, our loved ones, and community members in ways that would not be possible without this important information. Please have a listen to our previous broadcasts by searching our archives at t.me slash intuitive public radio and subscribe on telegram or anchor fm to follow these stories as they unfold our plan this morning is to talk about all the details of organ trafficking we have not covered in previous conversations and likely many of the same touch points we've referenced before that are well worth revisiting thank you so much helena for making this time to share with us uh, you're welcome. Um, I am going to start. Um, the, I am Helena Krezek. I am a nurse and also uh, I was the mother before my daughter died. Um, I have lost my child to this horrible evil of malpractice, which was most likely due to um, organ harvesting, need, uh, want for organ harvesting. And I have become very passionate about um, this uh, and interested in human trafficking and especially illegal organ harvesting. Um, I have attended myself to international conferences um, on um, forced organ harvesting. Uh, first one was in Rome and second one was in Paris. Uh, they were both on web because of the COVID situation. I would like to start with the little bit with the history and what's happening uh, kind of in uh, China. Um, uh, from the presentation of uh, Dr. Noto, who is uh, one of the uh, major uh, player for DAFOG. DAFOG is the organization um, Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, which is based here in the United States. Um, uh, between um, 1998 and 2001, uh, there were two important testimony which were uh, by uh, Chinese, uh, two Chinese persons. One was the prison guard and second person was the Chinese physician. And they both testify that China is using organs from the prisoners. Mm. Um, also, uh, during uh, this uh, statement, what Dr. Noto had made, um, he said that China is second to United States oh, in transplantation. Yes. So we are a number one transplantation country in the world. 
what probably many people don't know about that. I think I think many people don't. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. So medical business uh, tourism is really booming in China now. They have apparently overabundance of organs and they have on internet um, they guarantee for the patients, for the foreigners, um, they can produce the organs in the matter of weeks. It's a very profitable business for China. Uh, they have uh, what is very interesting about that they have not any formal public donation program. In uh, one year, there was apparently only 37 people um, nationwide in China registered as a donors. And China, uh, as we know, has 1.5 billion population. That's <laughs> that's nothing. <laughs> that's, that's astonishing. That's yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And over 95% uh, of the transplanted organs come from executed, uh, executed prisoners. So between 1997 and 2008, uh, China had uh, uh, completed over 100,000 uh, transplantation. 90% of organs came from executed prisoners. Um, so that would be approxim- approximately what they do. Uh, it would be 10,000 transplantation a year. But they apparently execute only between two to 8,000 prisoners. So we're still missing. Oh, gosh. They are still short. Mm-hmm. So if they execute, um, if they, even if they was to be executing 10,000 for those 10,000 transplantations, what they do, um, that there is still another problem. Problem is with the match, because we need ten people to match one person. So they will have to actually execute one hundred thousand people to uh, pr- uh, make ten thousand transplantation per year. And then also another factor comes to it is the short uh, time for a certain organs to before they can be transplanted into the uh, recipient. It's only maybe eight hours for the heart, you know, and uh, the hours are shorter for different uh, other organs. So it, it, it is an on-demand uh, industry. Another source of living donors uh, comes from the method of the execution. We know that China is committing horrible genocides, especially against the prisoner of conscience, Falun Gong, Uyghurs, and the other minorities. Yes. The problem is with our hospitals, which are training these Chinese doctors, um, especially surgeons who are performing all these uh, transplantation surgeries in China. Also, our universities are participating in funding the research in China. And our pharmaceutical companies are providing the drugs, especially the immunosuppressant drugs, for these procedures. So our medical communities are actually accomplices of China's genocide. Next, I would like to continue um, a very famous um, neonatologist, um, Dr. Paul Byrne. He did lots of research on this uh, transplantation, and he is based from Ohio. He's probably, I think, the only person in the United States who is really very involved in this, uh, who is fighting this cause. Okay. 
So, uh, when we go a little bit to the history, um, the first heart um, transplant was uh, performed in South Africa in 1967. And three days later, we had to do another transplant here in Brooklyn, New York, because we cannot be behind, uh, which became illegal and immoral. Uh, so they went uh, to, they appointed the committee in Howard University right at the very beginning and uh, to um, uh, establish the diagnosis of the brain death uh, to be acceptable as a death. Right. Uh, in, yes, in 1968, committee was appointed and brain death was invented uh, to make it legal. Oh, wow. And, uh, Yes, before there was no such a diagnosis. If you will Google or look uh, in different books, before 1968, this diagnosis did not exist. uh, What is performed on this patient is the apnea test, which is the neurological test, which actually kills the patient. Because what is done, the patient is removed from the ventilator for 10 minutes. And during those 10 minutes, the brain swells even more. And um, as the brain is swelling, is uh, compressing different arteries and the blood flow of oxygenated blood, uh, which needs to be uh, for the brain to supply, to oxygen needs to be supplied to the brain, it's cut off. Yes. So the damage actually can become completely irreversible at that point. What is that test called? That you just uh, ap- apnea test. It's an apnea test. Uh, apnea test. Yes. Okay. Uh, never allow to do apnea test on any of your family members, because that's uh, the test which really caused the brain damage. True brain damage, irreversible brain damage. Wow. So uh, there are um, needs to be uh, lots of organs for this. Uh, the, uh, the transplantation industry is uh, a very profitable industry. And um, for the industry to exist, there need to be lots of organs. You know, uh, otherwise the in- there will be no industry without these organs. And. Um, before 1968, it does not exist in this, um, this industry. And uh, brain death is actually nothing else than the brainwashing of the people. <laughs> I must say it, but wow, it is yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, so, um, organ procurement agents, they visit the family and they take advantage of the vulnerable people of the family members and uh, they will persuade them that uh, their um, loved one uh, is in lots of pain and they have no chance of recovery that they are suffering and they should go ahead and agree with the um, removing a plaque so so the patient can be removed from the ventilator and taken for the uh, surgery to to have the organs uh, removed. Mm-hmm. But actually the procedure itself, uh, it's done, patient is actually alive, patient has to be alive because the organs uh, has to be, have to be viable. 
if a, the patient was to die four minutes after the actual cardiopulmonary death, the patient, uh, the organs uh, cannot be used no more. They are not viable and the, the composition starts immediately four minutes after uh, the actual pul cardiopulmonary death. Um, we have, um, there is a controversy radio from Canada and um, this is a couple of younger kids uh, which really strike me very, very much and they are very passionate also about this cause. So I've been listening uh, to their radio and uh, they really talk about this, um, uh, you know, how much money is produced by this uh, industry. They get half a million apparently per one person and 50% of this money goes to physicians also. The money which are generated from this uh, organ transplantation go to the um, hospitals and physicians. The, the organs what you would give from your loved one are actually free and the hospital sells them for the profit. Uh, there, wow. there were some, some nurses also uh, which were shut down as a conspiracy theorist uh, who were talking against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, the brain injury um, needs time to heal. Brain is the soft tissue and uh, the swelling needs to be uh, decreased. Uh, years back we used to use uh, brain diuretics like Manitol to decrease the swelling of the brain. Also, another problem in the hospital is when they tell you that they uh, put your loved one into the induced coma. Induced coma is the red flag. We never put the patients into induced coma. We don't need to induce them because we want to keep them awake as much as possible. Hmm. Um, when we're giving the patient, um, and that was happening during the COVID also a lot, um, usually when the patient is on ventilator, um, they uh, need to be sedated, but only with one to two sedatives the most. If they give five to six different sedatives, as they were giving COVID patients, and generally many sedatives, uh, mm -hmm. which are increasing ammonia level in the blood, and that leads to permanent coma, seizure, and the death. Oh, wow. Um, a family is being lied to many times uh, because uh, they will tell them that their loved one will remain the vegetable and that it's uh, all this is inhuman and uh, they are children who are suffering and they should consider um, to um, donate the organs. You know, um, you know the organ, um, this organ transplantation industry is actually more profitable than abortion industry, which I did not know. I was kind of thinking that they are maybe on the same level, but I was not sure. This I did not know. A lot of the information about about organ trafficking, about human trafficking altogether, it, it, it really is kept under the surface. And then what yes. people tend to hear from is they tend to hear from the powerful and moneyed 
marketing influences that are that are driving a lot of policy awareness like this is what's going to happen to you if you go to a hospital or or this is what to expect if a loved one um, has these these kinds of health concerns like they they communicate the specific things that help people follow instructions but people who try to dig for this information it takes a lot to find yes. out this other stuff. And and for many of us, it's not even possible for us to do that research because of what we are navigating in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. we, there, many people have no chance of discovering mm-hmm. the, the details that you're sharing with us. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about uh, the opioid crisis. So what I have found out that this opioid crisis actually had boosted boosted number of organs available for transplantation. Wow. You know, those fat, uh, fatal opioid overdoses provided favorable organs for the uh, organ donors. You know, it's almost like one think what they create leads to another for profit. Well, I, I mean, when we examine where money, where money comes from and where it goes, we see very complex layered systems of, of power players making decisions yes. that allow them to influence or um, benefit from multiple industries at once that most people have no idea would be connected for the benefit of somebody's bank account. But as you go deep into the, this kind of information, we, we find more and more and more of that kind of thing and ways that um, people in power structures have of, of, of siphoning money and life energy off of the population without the population having any clue that it's going yes. on. You know, I was looking at, um, there, there was one lawsuit, a few, few lawsuits actually, uh, which uh, I was kind of thinking about. Um, there was a nurse uh, named Patrick McMahon. He is a military nurse who was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I believe. He had returned back about eight, ten years ago, whenever that those war finished. and. Uh, he, you know, when you are a military nurse, you want to save. You you do everything to save, mm-hmm. and you have a very positive attitude on saving people. But so he did. He got himself a job with Live on NY, which is the organ donation place uh, here in um, New York, and. Um, Within four months, he was fired from his job because he saw what was happening and he would not agree. There was apparently four patients in question. Uh, there was, these patients had some uh, disabilities and they wanted to use them for organ donation, for ha- harvesting. Mm-hmm. And so he, he stepped out and he said, no, I cannot be part of this. So because he was speaking out, he got fired from his job. So he sued this place. He'd been suing this place, this lawsuit. I don't know. I don't think it's over yet because last time I was monitoring that it was about two years ago. And the judge gave order for the production of the medical records of these four patients. But the life on NY is not producing these medical records even uh, by judge's order Hmm. you know this is how strong uh, politically um, this uh, is supported yes you know this organ transplantation 
Um, you know, according to this uh, organ donation place, um, um, Life on NY, uh, if you have the absence of two or more uh, brain stem reflexes, your Glasgow Coma Scale decreases. If it decreases, I uh, this was the course I have taken as a nurse. Mm-hmm. So, so if it decreases, uh, Glasgow Coma Scale uh, end up below five, and with the family discussion sometimes not even a consent or whatever, they, they are able to uh, proceed with the organ harvesting. They, they don't give a chance to the patient to recover, yeah. you know. Uh, for example, I will be walking on the street and I fall, I hit my head, my brain will swell down. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, and it, it is a soft tissue, it needs the chance of recovery. And it needs longer than the... Uh, uh, other organs uh, mm-hmm. or other par- parts of the body to recover yeah. but uh, they won't give you that uh, time they uh, once they go based only on the reflexes brainstem reflexes and glasgow coma scale those two factors and the discussion with the family and they are in business that's so interesting mm-hmm. that you mentioned this part particularly um one of the things that we have a lot of recent and longer term discussions about in the the intuitive community network is about how um, survivors in our network really frequently describe situations where accurate information about neurological injury and about recovery from neurological injury are being really suppressed in basically all of the environments that, that are there to help people what we find is that if you're above a certain threshold, then you might get through those environments successfully and say, I, I went to this hospital. I had a good experience. I'm so glad. You know, people feel relief, too, when they get through it. But then what we have is huge numbers of survivors who say that this professional environment had no accurate information about neurological injury or what it actually takes to recover from it. And when we said, hey, this is our experience, this is even our research, you know, people who have um, professions where they come into contact with information about um, neurological trauma recovery and similar, who speak up in these environments, they get suppressed too. And there's a yeah. lot of violence that is happening just on that basis. So I'm glad that you mentioned that specifically. I like to uh, read about these various cases, you know, to compare them and how all this situation can happen. You know, um, you know, organs are not only used for transplantation, they are also used for research, education, and other stuff. What we even have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I have found this another lawsuit. Uh, the person was the dentist uh, here in New Jersey. His name was Michael Mastro Niano. I think he is in prison now. But he established a company which had like a biotech, you know, completely innocent name. But he was illegally harvesting uh, the organs from the dead people. And he was selling them for these other purposes, not for transplantation, obviously, because you cannot use them because they are not viable. Mm -hmm. But he was selling them for these other purposes, you know, making millions and millions of dollars. Do you do you do you think that he's in jail or do you do you think he might be or what? I mean, what? That's very interesting, too. 
what I read about this case, uh, that he is in prison. That's what I understood. Then there was another case of uh, Ryan Singleton. I don't know if I had mentioned this way, way back in one of my interviews, but Ryan Singleton was the man in his mid-late 20s. He was a fashion model in New York, and he had returned back to Atlanta. And from Atlanta, he was driving to California, and his car broke down in the Death Valley somewhere, maybe a mile away from some small vicinity. Only people he was in contact with was the police. So he gets to this vicinity where is a little gas station, maybe just a few houses, and call his friend in California to come pick him up. Well, the friend comes maybe in the next four or five hours, Ryan was nowhere to be found. So they start looking for Ryan, and about two months later, the gentleman was walking the dog maybe three, four miles away from that vicinity and found his decomposed body. When they did autopsy, they found that all his organs were missing Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. eyes were missing. But the mother was told by the police uh, that he was attacked by coyote. Uh, this is not a coyote's injury. Uh, coyotes, when they attack, we know how coyote's injuries look like. Right. They take everything, if they can. They they don't do a nice surgical incision and take only organs and oh, eyes. Oh, wow. We have a lot of stories in the network about how Native communities are experiencing m- murders and organ removals of vulnerable mm-hmm. members of their communities. And um, there, there's some conversation about that that happens. There's a, there's a, there are a number of hashtags that people follow, but missing and murdered indigenous people, um, missing and murdered indigenous women and children and two-spirit relatives, where mm-hmm. people have been trying to get this into the main conversations that all of us have about, are we, are we safe in our environments or are we facilitating violence by looking the other way? And that conversation, even with as much progress as has been made on it, it's a fraction of what it needs to be. And it's horrifying what people are experiencing Mm -hmm. while that conversation is not occurring. Um, And that's where we're at with all of this right now. You know, there was another case which I came across. It was a case in uh, in Syracuse, in one of the hospitals there. There was a woman who was brought to the, maybe 40 years old female, brought to the emergency room with, uh, she OD'd, but she OD'd only on over-the-counters medication, like Benadryl and, you know, some over-the-counter stuff. Mm-hmm. And they immediately, instead of giving her antidotes or letting her to sleep this through, they immediately pull her into the operating room for harvesting. Oh, wow. And that woman woke up before they could start harvesting. And the nurse apparently said, no, you cannot do this because the woman is alive here. And so that saved her that she kind of woke up and, yeah, this is how it's done, how quick this procedure can be without even thinking, without even giving a chance to that person. We first, we have a Hippocratic oath, not only the doctors, but the nurses too, kind of. And we promise that we're gonna do the best by our patients, Mm -hmm. utilize our knowledge and compassion and everything, but this is not done. The world is completely different. Helena, could I ask you a question 
Um, so a lot of what you've said thus far, and, and you, you, you talked about it more specifically earlier um, on the phone just now, um, I, I, um, how, how professionals in medical environments are financially benefiting from being part of an environment that facilitates organ trafficking, whether or not they know what's going on. To, to the, the, the fact that when professionals recognize this and speak up about it, they're driven out of their workplace. And there, okay. there, are many, there are many other kinds of things that happen when people speak up about it. But for you, for, for you um, with your nursing experience, with your experience in health professional environments, um, we've been talking a lot in the network about right livelihood, about yes. how, how are we making a living and is the living we're making visibly or invisibly related, dependent upon human trafficking pathways? And what does it feel like to you as a professional to know that people are making the livings they have to make in that environment, not even knowing that this is happening? Like there's some kind of huge moral injury that is going on for people, even if they don't realize why. We're affected psychically by yes. the fact that we are aligned with this kind of violence that is going on so invisibly. And I would just love to know more about what that experience has been like for you to, to discover that and be working on it this way. You know, I um, at the beginning, I start seeing different things over the years, you know, but uh, once you are so preoccupied with your work, you, you as a person yourself, you follow, I always follow what I've been taught in my school. I never uh, cross the boundaries, really. I never cross the boundaries. And you, you are so overworked as a nurse yeah. that you don't really even have a time to think what's happening to other nurses' patients, what's going on. But when this happened to my daughter, I start opening my eyes really, really wide and I start seeing what's happening around me and things were happening yeah yeah, yeah. and we don't notice them at all if we're pressed I, too hard and we don't make the space to figure out what's going on that's what's going what's on, going on. <laughs> yeah yeah it's unfortunate but because I always was concentrating only on my group of patients you know, yeah. and what I said, I have to do whatever, uh, you know, I've been taught in the school, wh whatever it comes to all the safety protocols, you know, I cannot cross the boundaries, you know. So I was following everything what I've been taught. Many times I would get into argument with other nurses for different things. Mm -hmm. I, I was getting into argument throughout my whole nursing career, actually, I must say. Yeah, because I would always bring whatever was... Uh, whatever I was taught. And uh, some people don't like that. Some people think they know everything. <laughs> you, you don't, <laughs> especially people who just come from the school. They yeah. think they know everything. You're dealing with human life and you really, it takes the experience. Not everything, yes, we have to follow what we've been taught also, but also the experience is important. For example, if you want to give some powerful drug to somebody, you have to think how that person will react to it. If I give two milligrams of active to somebody who weighs only 50 kilo and is uh, hypotensive already, as was my daughter, mm 
what was given to her, or I give it to some uh, healthy guy who is 200 pounds. It's gonna be different it's results. Big difference, yeah. There'll be big different results. And they don't think about it. They, they think this is okay. Because the, uh, the book says, you know, up to this uh, dosage, this is okay. No, it's not okay. You know, I, and I have some very smart nurses who would come to me and I never forget there was one male nurse who would come to me and he had a gentleman who was a little bit heavier, but slightly hypotensive to low blood pressure, maybe 90 to 100 over 60. And the gentleman wanted one milligram of Ativan. And he, the, the young nurse, male nurse comes to me and he said, you know, I don't feel comfortable. And I said, you know what, you are right. Because if you give this, we would have a whole night problem. Because even one milligram to the patient who is already slightly hypotensive can create the problems for us. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Go ask for another sleeping aid. There are other sleeping aids such as Benadryl, melatonin, what the doctors can order for him. Because if the patient is already hypotensive, you, you have to be cautious. You know, sometimes the doctors order this stuff, they don't think, you know, pharmacy releases, but it's also up to the nurse. We all three of us doing the checks on the medications and everything. It starts with the physician who prescribes, it goes to the pharmacy who releases that order, and it goes to the nurse who is giving it. So we all have to catch the problem. The order could be completely wrong. And I have caught the orders way, way back. I remember my first call was the doctor. It was a resident doctor many years ago. He ordered Valium and he ordered the dose, 10 times acceptable dose. Wow. Yes. I look, it was the, those, those days we had a handwritten orders and he orders it and he said, I have put the order in for you, go give it. I look at it, I said, you know what, I'm not giving it, you can go give it yourself. And, and he tells me, what do you mean you're not giving it? I said, I'm not giving it. So he checked it, he realized he made an error, he came back to me and he said, thank you. Oh, thank you for saving my butt is yes. what he needs to say. Yeah. Yep. Whoa. Yep. And I, oh, wow. I, I always have really big feelings when I talk with you. <laughs> um, because w what we're discussing, the way that these details fit into completely different stories that nobody would ever think could possibly be connected to organ trafficking, it's connected. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that it's connected is... Um, and one of the things that we're learning as we talk more with you has been, how are we supporting health professionals so that they get to make their best decisions? And yes. it's not by allowing them to be increasingly overworked in what are essentially very abusive work environments. Yes, many, many yes. people are experiencing um, abuse patterns that are completely unacceptable, but because they're in their situation and that's how they're making a living and they don't know where else to go. And, and to be honest, that is a form of human trafficking to co-opt professionals who would otherwise do the right thing, who would otherwise see the error, who would otherwise yeah. stand up for the patient, stand up for the family, but they can't because they're being pressed into stressful, mm -hmm. continuing situations that they never, they can't see anywhere out of. And so they do the best they can, but they, 
they can't really think very well if they're being treated that way. And so any one of the lessons for our members in our groups has been, if you think that you're going to get care and respect from a medical environment that is treating its professionals that way, that's a very yes. scary kind of mistake to be making. Yes. And a lot of people are making that mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, to me, it was always about the patient. I never really cared that much about the hospital or the doctors. Mm-hmm. For me, it was that patient. I figured out this is why I'm here. This is where my money coming from. And I have to do my best. And I did not care about the hospital or the physicians because we all are humans and we are all different. But, you know, I have to stand what I promised I will do right away. That was my thing. You know, I have also, when going back to this uh, uh, human trafficking, I have found this very uh, interesting article in 2018 in... uh, and this goes to the governments of the different countries. Uh, in this time, in November uh, 27, 2018, there was an article written about the Greek diplomats who were using a visa to, um, were providing visa to uh, unaccompanying children in order to facilitate illegal organs removal. There was over 3,000 children in question. Um, most uh, most of these uh, ch- th- those were children who were under 18 year old uh, age, uh, so consent was not relevant at that point. So 93 of these diplomats were, um, you know, uh, sent to the prosecution, and they are in the prison now. But this is how the governments can also influence all this stuff for the money. This is an example how governments can make the money on this and they don't care about these innocent children. This article completely made me cry mm-hmm. when I was reading it. I could not even believe it what I was reading. It's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. Yeah. And, and something that we always have to remember is that when news comes out, when we hear something about this many people were held responsible for this particular thing, a lot of the time that's being coordinated by the influences that are, are, are going to continue doing that thing. But these are the scapegoats that they're setting up to, to make the public think that it's being addressed when yes. it's not being addressed. And as long as people aren't listening fully to survivors and including survivors and their families in these conversations, there's no way to, to stop it from happening if we're not going to talk about it. Yes. Yeah. We have to talk about it and the people have to educate themselves about this. This is so important, very important. You know, there was another presenter in those two conferences I was, and I really like this um, physician. He is from Brazil. He's a Brazilian neurologist who also paid his price with license. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, his name is Cicero Coimbra. He is a neurologist, and uh, he is also against this brain damage, and um, brain damage, and also um, this organ harvesting. I mean, because he states that um, only um, there has to be irreversible brain damage because 
damage, uh, let's say from fall, when the brain just swells up, it's not the damage to the brain, it's actually uh, brain becomes silent. He calls mm. it the brain becomes silent and he has a special term for it, which I have never heard before. Even I studied Latin years back. It's, he call it ischemic penumbra. Ischemic penumbra. Ischemic penumbra. Yeah, it's from Latin. So it's like a brain becomes silent. Mm -hmm. And so um, he talks about that, you know, this transplant system is a very wealthy, powerful political system. And what, what is in interesting when it comes to the money in the U.S. in 2016, the profit was 25 billion from this transplantation business in 2016. But by 2025, it is expected to reach 51 million per year. How wow. we can accomplish something like that? Wow! And I mean, it, we, we we are we are watching, we are documenting all of these invisible people having zero ways uh -huh. to get help in their situation, and that's increasing as uh -huh. as the whole COVID narrative unfolded. We yeah. watched all of our trafficking pathways get significantly more active. More active, yeah. They, they must be, uh, because if you want to double the profit, you know, that's practically doubling profit. Yes. How could you do that? I, 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 I've been thinking about this. This uh, is, uh, cannot leave my mind. I, I keep thinking about it. How is this possible? Yeah. When when information about neurological injury and recovery from neurological injury is being suppressed, it's not only the people who have um who, who for instance might be might be labeled as brain dead it's also everybody who's being affected by contaminants in our environments um there are all kinds of neurotoxins and endocrine disruptors that cause what i guess we would call subclinical neurological injury where people keep um, people keep going through their motions people can still yeah. do their jobs in a lot of ways but their ability to recognize dangers in their environment their ability to speak up when something bad is happening is much reduced and they don't even know it because people are not being given real accurate information about how neurological injury occurs and what the brain needs to recover from it um it's shocking the ramifications of this yes it is i have found um, two quotes which are really interesting um, one quote is brain death is the criteria of death is nothing other than conventional fiction driven by pragmatic utilitarian needs and interests of organ transplantation this the, I, I missed just the beginning of what you said. Was this something you saw somewhere or a conclusion that you I, came I, to? I saw it somewhere. Yeah, I, I really like that quote. I'm very mm -hmm. interested in that, mm -hmm. where that came from, yeah. if you remember. I, I don't remember exactly. And then uh, because I am uh, really uh, collecting these different quotes and all these articles on uh, this uh, organ harvesting and transplantation, you know, to me, it's all illegal, but uh, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's illegal. And the other quote is brain death was invented for the sole purpose of organ transplantation. Living human medical experimentation and the means in which measures to sustain life could be legally withdrawn. It was the first legal form of euthanasia in the U.S. Ah. Is the Mm -hmm. This deadly code of silence has been broken. 
you know, those are very important statements, I think. Yes. Very important statements. Going back to uh, Dr. Byrne, um, you know, he talked about brain death, uh, you know, um, as uh, the fake death. And that's true. Brain death is not the true death. Mm -hmm. Only true death is cardiopulmonary death. You know, um, so um, there have been patients, uh, what he uh, discussed, uh, some of his patients he was taking care of and trying to save them. There was a young lady who was in the coma and they already uh, said that she's brain dead. The government had issued a death certificate on the patient who was on the ventilator. There was already a death certificate issue. The patient was still on the ventilator, was the hospital patient, but there was already a death certificate issue. And that was from Dr. Burns' experience. And also when I have read article from Dr. Coimbra, he had the same experience. And I've been questioning, how is this even possible? How is this even possible? How are governments can issue a death certificate on the person because when that person is on the ventilator they are alive because you cannot put the dead man on the ventilator because it would not work right it would not work and if the brain is function those patients have seizures when they are on ventilator and the, the person who has irreversible brain damage they won't have seizures Oh, wow. That's there very interesting. Mm -hmm. the, the patients who have irreversible brain damage won't have a seizures. And the patients who have just the brain damage, they, what they call brain death, mm -hmm. they will have a seizures. Oh. That's where the difference is. My goodness. Yeah. That's important. <laughs> That's, That's important. very important. Yes. And a lot of people, like, there are cues that we can watch for. But a mm -hmm. lot of people don't know what cues to watch for, and so as a result, they're just they're they're in they're in the ocean. They have no idea like where where do you reach for some sort of handhold to understand what's going on. You know, there is also when we look at the DMV um, when uh, you. Um go to DMV for your license and uh, some people say yes okay I will give my organs so they document yes but uh, what is interesting when you say no it's nowhere recorded it's not recorded when you really? say no I didn't know that mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. I did not know that also yeah there is a um, uniform determination uh, death act which was passed already in 47 states and it means that everyone has um, consult, um, consented already uh, to be an organ donor. Uh, this I did not know also. I told you. Like a default, like like a mm -hmm. default consent. It's like yes, like everyone. What is it? Con consent is not. You don't default to consent. That's not consent. Sorry. It's not consent. <laughs> that not. activates me. According to this, this was this came from uh, Doctor Byrne. You know, oh. uh, this, I, I was uh, you know studying some of his stuff, 
Mm-hmm. And this one I was not familiar with. I thought only if you say yes or no, right? Yeah. But he says, according to this informed determination uh, death act, which was passed already in 47 states, um, everyone has apparently consented. And um, it's a, like a, a anatomical gift pack if you ever heard about that and everyone uh, had already opted in by law but there is no such a law so we have been studying a lot about law and the difference between law and the legal fictions that a lot of people think are the law but because those legal fictions are written using languaging that most people don't know how to interpret Yes. They think that that's the law when, in fact, it's someone, I mean, it's essentially being tricked into doing something you wouldn't otherwise do because you think you have to. And mm-hmm. there's so much of that um, through, through all of these conversations. There's so much of that. One of the things that um, we've been very interested in is how, like, if we, if we talk about um, how things like this occur, what happened to Bianca, all of the work that you've done to figure out what was going on that caused yes. her death, and then the things that you experienced after. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 it's terrible. And one of, the, one of the ways that we are learning more about how those things happen is by noticing that most of the people in the environments, for instance, most of the people in a professional environment won't understand what's happening. Yes. They don't understand what they're facilitating. But all it really takes is a few individuals embedded at particular parts of a process. Um, mm-hmm. And then those individuals know other individuals that then, like, they can get labels applied. They can say this is what was actually happening. And nobody else understands what happened because nobody's tracking that part of the process. When we talk about embedded trafficking operatives, that's yes. often what we're talking about. And it's not only operatives. It's also people who are being harmed and blackmailed and their yes. families are being threatened, and so they do what they have to do to survive in those cases, but they do facilitate these trafficking pathways. Yes, that's true, that's true. You know, there was another thing which struck me because I was always so much for HIPAA law, mm. you know, and <clears throat> there is a, a 14 ways government can uh, get our information and organs through the HIPAA law. When you signing that, uh, when you go to the hospital and you sign these admission papers, there is a bunch of papers, and one of them is that HIPAA consent. And um, you sign that consent according there is um, on uh, on that HIPAA very small writing in that HIPAA document is written that your organs belong to the government. No. That's in the HIPAA. That's in the HIPAA, yeah. I did not know that. I I don't know if you've ever um, run across Dr. Jennifer Daniels. Jennifer Daniels, and I I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm quite quite going to say this right, but um, it was an interview on the Higher Side Chats with Greg Carlwood, and she was talking with Greg about his experience um, with his wife, um, the the birth of his child, um, and that they had made all of these plans to stay out of the hospital and then Mm -hmm. they still got funneled to the hospital from the natural resourcing that they thought was going to keep them from having to go to the hospital and what what dr daniels said was she said 
when you go into a hospital, and I don't remember the exact word she used, but it was essentially something like you are in government custody as soon as you go into the hospital. When I asked other people about that, they said, oh, yeah, I knew that. But but that's not something that is discussed. That's not something that people tend no. to realize. I wondered if you if you had any thoughts on that. I don't have the thoughts, but over the years I've been kind of, when I've been watching different policies, I've been kind of coming, it was kind of hitting me. <laughs> why different laws and why different things, why sometimes patients cannot leave, mm. you know, if they would want it to. And there were different things which strike me. And I start thinking about it more and more. Yeah that there has to be some kind of connection between our government and uh, hospitals. Well, that's what we're finding. More mm-hmm. and more and more. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next time we record. I'm ho- I keep hoping that, that we can record more frequently, and then what I'm dealing with here is so extreme, and I can't even figure out where I'm at as regards scheduling until we, we find one another again. But I'm yes. so glad that we've been able to keep revisiting this and continuing these conversations it's absolutely crucial that people understand that this is going on yeah people have to understand what is really happening yeah because uh, you know uh, they could fool if they were to me the way how i see it if they were able to fool and this is a uh, these people were full globally practically about this organ harvesting about this you know, uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not happening only in the US, it's happening in China by force, especially here too. But yes. it's done different way, it's covered. We got the laws for it. However, they, they can hide it. They mm-hmm. hide it. <laughs> yeah, they hide it behind the laws. And uh, and other countries too, they, you know, they, uh, they can actually, um, you know, cover these different ways, you know. Um, so this is uh, if they can fool these people for f- 50 years which is half of the century since late se- 60s um it was only very easy to fool them about the covid yes one leads to the easy. other yes yeah. yes the infrastructure so one of the things that we were tracking um and and are still tracking is that years before covid the infrastructure was being laid in our communities to make people especially susceptible to having to just follow instructions and not be able to think about what's happening and and what we've seen borne out because of that um has become truly massive it was massive before so what is this now this apocalypse birth process we're all experiencing it's time for people to choose for themselves and not wait for instructions from trafficking organizations yes you know uh, this actually struck me when i was in that second international conference attending through the website because of the covid um there was uh, some um, attorneys nurses uh, journalists and there was one journalist from italy and he made a statement about this. I've been thinking about this before, but his statement kind of confirmed what I already thought before. And he said, you know, this um, illegal organ harvesting and all this harvesting and everything, forced organ harvesting, um, is the precedent of COVID. And I said, hallelujah. <laughs> he confirmed for me what oh. I was thinking, kind of. Do you, do you know who that was? Do you know the person's I, I, name? 
I don't know, but you know, I have uh, documented all the uh, speakers. I have them. Uh, if you want, I can send them to you. I am, you can access the conference. I'm really interested to talk more about your experiences at the conferences. Um, yeah. We have tried. We have tried to participate in conferences in a number of ways. We ended up making our own conference space because we couldn't join anybody else's conferences. Um, but but yeah, I would love to talk more about that either in the intervening time or next time we record. Yes, I can pull uh, separately that uh, journalist and just send you that journalist if you are interested. That would be great. Yeah. That would no, be great. No, he made that statement, so I was really. I said, "Oh my God." You think the same way as I do. I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm, I, that, that's something that we're all, I mean, and that's, that's a good closing note, too, for today. Um, we are learning that we're not alone. We're learning how many yes. people this is happening to, and people in isolated circumstances are having to do the work on this where no one else has been willing or able to do it, and the work that you're doing on it is really a blessing to us and uh, I'm so sorry about what happened to Bianca for this to be possible, but I really appreciate, yeah. I you. deeply, deeply Thank appreciate the, the, the resources that this brings to our community members because our community members can't find help anywhere else. So it's you know, a huge I, service that you are doing for all of our communities, and I'm grateful for that. You know, I think Bianca would be happy that I'm doing this. Yeah, she would be happy. Yeah. I want to say also, I I know I understand why you say it the way you do, but when you say that you were you were a mother before Bianca's death, I just want to tell you that that my 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 feeling, my experience is that you are showing up um, as a mother to people who can't reach the p- people who don't have family, people yes. who don't have any means of. We, there is a motherness that is really, really real for us in this that you are bringing this when it is so painful and I mean it can be so destructive just to even talk about it Um, and you're doing that anyway and it it really impacts a lot of people you know now I'm thinking about it more as we approaching the trial and also um, you know I am working more closely with the attorneys and uh, I'm like taking care of my consciousness. I start to do sound therapies and gong therapies, if you are uh, familiar with yes. that. Yes, yes, that sounds wonderful. And that helps me a lot, you know, it, to tap into my consciousness and it helps me to deal better and be more clearer on everything, what has happened to my daughter. And yeah, I really enjoy that. Yeah. Well, we will continue to revisit these conversations as often as you want to join us. You are always invited. It's really wonderful to have you as part of our platform. Um, So however we can keep um, working on this together, um, we're working also on Bianca's website. And so I want to make sure to mention that if people want resources like these to be more available, they can support Intuitive Public Radio so that we can support our community members more so that stories like this can get out and anyone can reach out to me. Um, My telegram is t.me slash Max Morris and the main channel on telegram is t.me slash Intuitive Public Radio. So we invite everyone into this to learn more about it and work on it and make sure that survivors and their families have access to this information and these resources. Thank you. Thank you very much 
for uh, you know bringing me in and letting me to speak about all these issues and i want to continue more i have more to say i really want to for the public to be aware you know some people might not get it all but uh, people who are open-minded and want to learn they will learn yes and when we when we do that we're saving one another that's true in big ways 